Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is a martial artist and actress. She was the first woman to hold the title of number one women's black belt force champion for the Karate Illustrated rankings, a title she held two years in a row. She was also the first woman to be rated number one women's black belt force competitor in the star system ratings and the first woman to win the grand champion at the U.S. Open. She's credited with historic contributions to the martial arts, specifically for women. Before she fought to make changes, Karate Illustrated Illustrated rated men and women together. She retired from competition after winning the Diamond Nationals by defeating Cynthia Rothrock, Belinda Davis, and Lori Clapper. She then moved into Hollywood and has been seen in such movies as Shinobi Ninja, Above the Law with Cynthia Rothrock, Cyborg 2, and in TV series like Hercules, The Legend Continues, VIP, Criminal Minds, just to name a few. She currently holds the rank of professor in 8th degree black belt in one hop Kundo under senior grandmaster Al DeCoscos. Please welcome my guest today, Karen Shepard. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing good. I, I truly appreciate your time. And, and we've been talking about this for a while, so I'm glad we were, we're finally able to work it into both of our schedules and make this happen. <laughs> yes. Well, it's an honor to be invited. Thank you so much. Well, kind of what we do with all my guests, I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to know where that first spark came from, that first interest that kind of kicked off your martial arts journey. The very first moment, and it's kind of an interesting story because I can look back on it now and kind of know how it happened. But back then, this was a really, really long time ago. I was a kid and I had to choose a um, credit for school. I had like a little extra time and they had a big board posted of class choices. And on that board, I saw karate. And I thought, wow, that would be really different. I was a gymnast and um, I thought, well, that would kind of might sort of be easy for me because I was a gymnast, but it sounds really exotic and <laughs> it's something that I don't know anybody that did. So I took the class. It was a three-month class in Shotokan Karate. Oh, cool. And um, yeah, and you know, even then, those moves just felt so natural to me and I really loved it. And the uh, at the end of the class, the instructor said, you know, you have uh, an ability. You should really take formal classes. And of course, I was, uh, my dad said no. I was, <laughs> I was uh, very, very, very young. And that was like, no, well, girls don't do that. And that's just a fad that you're going through because, you know, I was a young teenager and I was mm -hmm. Young girls go through fads. <laughs> they don't last long at certain things. They just move on to the next. But he thought it would be, no. So we couldn't afford it. And mm -hmm. so time went by. And then I uh, got into my first year of college. And somebody said, hey, come try my Tai Chi class. And there was a, a gentleman, young student, a Chinese student, who was teaching Tai Chi on the side in a little warehouse room somewhere in, in Oregon, in Eugene, Oregon, off campus. And uh, so I took the Tai Chi classes and they were really affordable because it was just extra money for him mm -hmm. to get by on. And so I just paid for it out of my allowance <laughs> and my my little budget. And, and I loved the movements of Tai Chi. And when he would describe what they meant and where they came from and that they were animal movements and that they were actually fighting techniques and that they could be applied and you know, sped up. And it was like, uh, wow, I just love that kind of movement. And then I met a girl in one of my classes who said, hey, come and try my Kajikempo class. And again, this was being taught off campus by another student who was just making pocket money. Mm -hmm. 
So it was extremely affordable and it was like a karate club. So I was able to take those classes in, but that I knew that was going to be it. There was just something about, I had a knowingness. My friend and I stayed up all night making my first ghee. She was the most interesting, uh, this friend of mine, her name was Sue. And uh, she, we stayed up making my uniform. She had a pattern and it was a Chinese black martial arts gi. Well, I think there's a different Chinese word for it, but mm-hmm. I just knew that that was going to be my thing. I had a knowingness. I can't even explain it. And uh, I was one of uh, like three women in the class. And again, I felt like I belonged and it just felt so natural. And and I was right. That was it. Kaju Kempo was the style for me and I excelled. I very innocently went to my first tournament not expecting a thing. I was very underestimated and overlooked because I was very shy. Mm-hmm. I had been bullied as a kid. Maybe that's one reason I chose karate. I don't know, but I was very quiet and shy. And I went to my first tournament and I won first place in kata. And nobody watched me from the school. Wow. And I walked up to my instructor. Yeah, I was, you know, by myself. And I walked up at the tournament and showed him my trophy and he was like, oh, <laughs> wow, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> and uh, wow. and I just, just kept winning. And then he went to Denver to study from with Alba Costco's. He went there to open up a, a country campus school and to study one hot kindo with, with Alba Costco's. And that's where I met Alba Costco's and Malia de Costco's Bernal. And um, I'll backtrack just a hair. Mm-hmm. At one point before we went, oh, of course, I followed him to Colorado. I moved, packed mm-hmm. up and went too. And that was a, a whole ordeal because I had to tell my dad I was quitting school to go to <laughs> study martial arts. And that and he was, a, my dad was a professor at the university. And so education to him was like gold. And, you know, we're sitting in the backyard and I had to tell him, dad, I I just have this calling. I have this feeling that this is what I meant to do. I know it sounds kind of ridiculous to quit school and go pursue martial arts, and which is something that was totally foreign to him and to most people, yeah. especially women. And, you know, he was the most wonderful man. He gave me his blessing. He said, I don't ever want you to say what if. I don't want you to ever later in your life look back and go, what if I had tried? He said, but you have to promise me that you will try, try, try. And if it doesn't work out, admit that you tried your best and then move on and go back to school. He said, but realize your chances, the statistics are against you. Once you quit college and you leave school, the chances of you ever going back are like less than 10%. And he was right. I tried to go back a couple of times, but did not finish. But he gave me his blessing. I agreed to his terms. (laughs) And I packed all my things up and went to Colorado and eventually transitioned to One Hunt Kendo to Grandmaster. At the time, he was Sifu Wild Cosmos. Mm -hmm and studied one hot kundo and um i had gone to prior to that i had gone to um san francisco with my school this was before i went to colorado our school went down to san francisco in 1976 to watch a big national tournament it was the first national tournament i had ever seen i didn't go down to compete i just went down for the experience i was still a white belt and I didn't know about competing. I didn't, I wasn't ready. I just wanted to cheer everybody else on and just soak in the whole uh, vibe and experience and see what it was all about. And at that tournament was Eric Lee and Malia Picasso's Burnell competing on stage, performing in kata. And he was at that time the king of kata. And they blew me away. It was just incredible. I I had never seen anything like it. The power, the grace, the beauty of the uh, intention, the fierceness that both of them had. That's what made me want to be a kata champion. Kata forms, whichever term you wish to use. Mm -hmm. 
So that was my goal in going to Denver. It was like, I need to study with um, Malia. And it was it was a few years before she would accept me as a student. She kind of always gave me this eye, <laughs> like, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if I'll teach you. You know, I had to prove myself. And uh, I trained with CFOL in classes. And I had to, I traded. I couldn't really afford the classes. I had to work and I had to do chores around the school to help pay for my classes and whatever I could because I really couldn't afford it. But they saw something in me. So they were generous and uh, allowed me to train and help out in the office and, you know, clean the school or do whatever I could to help pay. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember one day Sifuwao would break out. Every, every once in a while, he would break out the uh, the dragon, the Chinese dragon, lion dance, sorry, the lion and the drums. And he would pound on the drums and people would get inside them. We'd do a lion dance and then he'd have people do their forms to the drums. And that stirs up a lot of, I don't know if you've ever been present during a lion dance. No, I But haven't. the, oh, it's the most phenomenal experience the lion dance is very represents different things, but the concept is to bring good luck, goodwill, good emotion, good, you know, love, vibes. It's a an uplifting, very symbolic dance and experience. And the drums that the big giant drum they use for that is it sounds amazing. And it just really gets you going and you just feel so good and energized. And he had all the students do perform their uh, katas to the drums one at a time. We'd sit against the wall and line up. He'd call somebody up and up you go and do your form. And it was my turn and I got up did my form. I was so, I was like out of my body. It was so, uh, it was the best form I'd ever done. I could just tell that there was something different. It was because of those drums, the energy, and the class erupted in applause. And you just don't do that in a martial arts class. Yep. <laughs> I'm not like that never happens. I was so embarrassed. I was like, I looked at Sifuwao and I went, oh, no, I'm in trouble. He had this look on his face, just like glaring at me. Like, <laughs> oh, he didn't say a word. And I sat back down on the floor. He just kind of nodded at me. And um, we finished the class. And then after the class, he sat me down against the wall after most people left. And he said, you know, Karen, it's really too bad that you don't have money. It's really too bad that you can't afford to travel the national circuit because I think you could be a champion. And that just, at my age, it just broke my heart. And uh, I went home crying and it upset me for about a week. <laughs> I thought, well, I want to be a form champion in this. I know I can't afford it. And, and there was uh, someone in my class who was very wealthy, who could afford it, uh, was not as good as I was, but it just really bothered me. But then something happened and I flipped my thinking and I just said, you know what? There's where there's a will, there's a way. I'm going to prove him wrong. And it's just going to happen. I don't know how. So <laughs> that was kind of a really monumental moment in my training and my thinking. And I just started training harder. And one day Malia came to me and said, okay, I think you're ready. Do you want to train? Oh, I said, well, of course. That's why I'm here. And I've been waiting for you to accept me. And she said, well, I think you're ready. So be prepared because this is not going to be easy. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever met her. No. Oh, she's, I think she would be a fantastic interview. Malia was the first, she was actually rated in 1976. There was the only ratings ever before that was, I think it was called Official Karate Magazine by someone named Mike Anderson. Mm -hmm. And he had kind of a haphazard ratings thing that was not based on any kind of 
a consistency. It was kind of like, well, who traveled the furthest from home? How many trophies did they get based on national and regional? And who did we see more often? There was no point system or real regulation. But she she was clearly far and away number one. And he put her as number one because she did have the most trophies. She tra- she traversed the nation competing with men, often the only woman. So he gave her the number one position. And that he folded. Uh, the magazine only lasted for a couple of years, maybe like two or three years. And it folded. So from 1970, and then she retired. In fact, I think Eric Lee and Malia de Costco's Burnell uh, retired that year after 76 because I started training with her in 77, the end of 77, and um, there were no ratings, none for women in forms. Karate Illustrated had ratings for men and, you know, they, they threw women in with men. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, Malia was clearly the best and I had achieved my goal of wanting to train with her. So that's what really sent me on my journey. I could ramble. So you stop me anytime if you have any questions. I'm I'm loving this. This is great. (laughs) Okay. So I committed and we trained hard. I mean, old school hard, walking out, dripping sweat, pain, blood. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It was different from how people train now. And then they went to Germany. They left and opened a school in Hamburg. And I was left high and dry and uh, with no teacher. And here I was wanting to compete and getting ready to thinking about hitting the national circuit. So somehow, I don't know how I did it, but I got myself to Germany because I needed to train. I needed to complete my training and prepare for the national circuit. And so I trained with Malia in Germany. Uh, I stayed there for a couple of months and and we trained hard. She trained myself and another student by the name of Christian Wolf, who was also champion. He was a European German champion. I mean, he ended up being the top forms competitor in Germany and Europe. And I'm not even sure he might have been rated here. I don't know, but he still is really good. He still is an amazing martial artist. But she would pit him and I together in our training sessions, and we would have to do our form like 10 times full out as if we were competing. And if we even stumbled a hair, we have to start all over again. And we did that every day for months, walking out of there just limping and (laughs) dripping with sweat and in pain and just drilling the the things that we didn't have perfect over and over and over. It was intense, incredibly memorable. Um, my time in Germany with her at the school was uh, really super special, but it made me a champion. And I came back. Oh, I have to say before they went to Colorado, we went to the Long Beach International Karate Championships I was in ask 1977. If you ever okay, cool. Yes, 1977. I was a brown belt and we drove from Colorado to Long Beach, actually Hollywood, because we stayed at Eric Lee's house. Eric Lee lived in Hollywood and he was famous for putting up students at his house. So he always had people staying there. He was <laughs> such a generous person to begin with. And so we and about 10 other students crashed on his floor and uh, drove down to Long Beach every day for the internationals. And uh, I won it as a brown belt in 77. And then she had gone to Germany and that whole story mm-hmm. unfolded. And then I trained in Germany. Then I came back and won all alone. She had stayed in Germany and I came back alone to no school, no fellow students and hit the national circuit on my own. And I traveled alone. I had no family, no fellow students. Well, for me, I didn't mean it that way, but (laughs) but it was kind of lonely. And, uh, you know, you don't have anybody cheering you on. You you have to just buck up and do it and boost yourself up and have the mindset of a winner. You have to learn how to do that. And so I won the Long Beach Internationals in 79 as a black belt and competed. uh, Well, I realized in 78, 
I'm traveling around the country competing and there's not that many women and women would come up to me like at the Battle of Atlanta, Joe Corley, um, I hit that tournament like two times in a row. Mm -hmm. And the last time I showed up, he said, I walked into the gym and he said, oh, Karen, you're here. I may as well hand you your trophy now. (laughs) (laughs) I love him. He's just the best. Joe's Um, Joe's been on the show. He's a great guy. Oh, he has a wonderful, I love him so much. He's just, he's just such a, such a kind man. So women would come up to me and say, you know, we really like what you do and want to do it too, but we just are intimidated. We don't want to compete with men. What's the point? You know, why do you travel the trim and, and uh, the circuit and pay all this money? Well, by that time, promoters were seating me and they were paying my expenses because I was the one to beat. Nice. So the top competitors, they would fly in and put up, pay the expenses because then you were billed as come beat Karen Shepard or, you know, Keith Vitale or whoever. So women would come up and say, well, we want to do this too, but <laughs> you're the only woman out there. So how are we going to, you know, what's the point? And that really bothered me. It really bothered me because I knew that the women were out there. I knew they wanted to compete. And there were a few top competitors like Lori Clapper and Belinda Davis and and I would and Arlene Lemus and I would see them on the road at the various tournaments and I just I was so young and bold and I felt like you know what have I got to lose so I approached I called the uh, Black Belt magazine and asked to speak with Renardo Barden the editor of Karate Illustrated and he so kindly agreed to have a meeting. So I drove up there and uh, we talked about it. And I said, you know, well, why why don't you rate women separately in forms? Because I really think more women would come out and compete if they had a title to work for. And uh, he said, well, maybe, but let's see. He said, I need you to help me. I can't just, we have to see what tournament promoters think about it and the other women. And well, I knew other women, of course, would want it. But he said, if you get a petition going and you convince these promoters to have divisions for women, which in itself was really, that was the harder challenge because these promoters didn't want to pay for the trophies. (laughs) There's not enough women. I know, right? There weren't enough women to warrant the expense of the trophies, which was really silly to me. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of, uh, you know, uh, there's a saying I heard, pioneers are never popular because they have to face these challenges that that make them unpopular people don't want confrontation or to change and especially when you're a young woman <laughs> you have a like this double there was this double wall to contend with so i just smiled and did my very best to speak to promoters and explain you know hey you can help out and help make history here and help women's sport karate grow by having divisions for women it would bring them out of the woodwork i just know it well long story short finally got it done and it happened do you remember uh, who, who was the first promoter to say yes do you remember it might have been Joe Corley okay. because he, he did me. not. <laughs> yeah, he did not have divisions for women. And I remember speaking to Larry Carnahan mm-hmm. and to um, oh, there was some other people who were beginning to have divisions for women. Ted Kresge at the U.S. Open, and some of them were like, well, no. and some of them were really open-minded but then once they saw that yes women were coming out of the woodwork they went with it but some of them were not open-minded some were very open-minded that was the hardest part and in 1979 the ratings were established i got the petition in uh we had enough promoters having divisions for women more women started to compete and i knew that i would be rated number one because i was going to the most tournaments and winning and karate illustrated told me i had the most points for the year and that i would likely be number one and that was wonderful but that wasn't my my full intention it was to grow the sport and have these women get off the benches from watching me and being inspired to competing 
And I was right. It happened. And so in 1980, they came out of the woodwork. And then you had a whole other generation come in, like uh, Cynthia and a lot of other women. And uh, it went from literally less than 10% to almost 50%. Wow. And those figures I got from Black Belt Magazine, because in this process, I needed to know what I was dealing with statistic-wise, and I wanted to know how many women martial artists there were in the country. And at that time, based upon their readership and their numbers in their research, it was only 10% women were martial artists, and it jumped to almost 50% uh, when the ratings were established. They did come out of the woodwork, and I was happy about that. And so, you know, it was... My my goal was accomplished, and I was happy to hand off the baton and retired from competition in halfway through 81. So, you know, there's I don't believe in coincidences. Mm-hmm. Even since then, so many amazing things have happened on my journey. But when I look back, thinking about looking up at that board as a kid, choosing karate, and the journey that I've been on, I just don't believe in coincidence. I just believe it's been God-given and God-guided, and I'm thankful and blessed. And it's it's still a journey I'm on. I, I don't know where he's taking me, but I'm just thankful and blessed. Wow. Yeah. That is so cool. And, and thank you for doing that, because I, my, I never got into the competition side of things myself. I've been in one tournament in my life. I, I never did it for comp, but I loved going and watching oh, wow. competition. And my first mm-hmm. time at a big like NASCA tournament was in 1990. My friend was competing, so we went down to support him. And yes. that was my first time going to the Diamond Nationals in 1990. And yes. yeah, yeah. And I went for like, you know, seven, eight years in a row just to watch and, and cheer people on and stuff. But I mean, I remember seeing, you know, people like Casey Marks Nash and Ashley Lane and some of those people who wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for you. So, and actually, yeah, and Casey and Marks has actually been on my show. Oh, wow. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah. NASCA came after me mm-hmm. after I retired. Uh, there were n- a number of rating systems that popped up after that. In 1979, uh, Karate Illustrated was the only system. And then the star system out of uh, Inside Kung Fu, which yep. was Star Magazine, established ratings. And then after that, NASCA started and then some other systems. So rating there became a numerous different rating systems. So a martial artist had to choose which one they wanted to go after because each one had their own point system and rules and all that. So there could be many people holding the number one titles. Yeah. And that's been discussed a few times on the show. Some people think there's sometimes too many and they need to maybe try to find a way to get it more focused again. And and it's an opinion thing. So it kind of depends. I don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's, it's just, it's just yeah. To me, it's just it's more options, more opportunities for guests for me. So <laughs> I've I've had a I've, I've had a handful <laughs> of the sport people on there. I've had people like you know Carmichael Simons have been on my show and and people like that and and awesome. you know, a lot of the former competitors uh, from back in the eighties nineties have been on my show. I've been lucky with that and and even some of the current ones that if you know the name Samantha Mitling, I had her on when she was sixteen, but she's a like a NASCA champion and. It was done this TV show and stuff, just amazing with the bow staff. And so, yeah, I've been, wow. it's yeah. I, I don't watch the tournaments like I used to, you know, uh, with mm-hmm. the, with the show, I don't have the time, but I definitely want to get, I haven't been to the diamond nationals in almost 20 years. I'd like to go back down just to watch one of these years. It would be fun, yeah. fun to see yeah. what it's become. Yeah, me either. I have no idea. I haven't followed it. So, so talk a little bit about your journey through Hollywood. Kind of how did, how did that come about? Yeah. So, um, I was competing. Uh, I started the 1981 season and uh, it was right. It was at the Diamond Nationals. And in May, I had gotten a call from Tadashi Yamashita a couple of weeks prior. And I did not know him. I knew of him. And do you know who he is? Oh, yeah. I've, I've never, you know, never had the chance to meet him, never talked to him. But a lot of my guests have talked about him. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a legend. Yeah. Um, he called me and I don't know how he found me. I got a message with his phone number that he wanted to speak to me about a movie. And so I called him and he's a very heavy Japanese voice, which I won't even try to intimidate, <laughs> imitate right now. 
Okay, I am doing movie in Japan. Um, you come, you come, Eric Lee. You, Eric Lee, you come. <laughs> Basically, okay. Yes, sir. Uh, I would, I would love to. <laughs> Very rough script uh, outline, and uh, I knew Eric was. Of course, I knew Eric. He was my 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 idol, and so we were on a plane together to Japan. And that was the most amazing experience. I had an open mind. I knew nothing about showbiz. I knew nothing about filmmaking, nothing about film fighting. Just spent the most beautiful time in the mountains of Japan in a place called Takaragawa, which is way up in the mountains. And it's very famous for their hot springs Mm. and black bear in the woods and the Hotel is this very traditional Japanese hotel where you you sleep on the floor. They come and roll out this really comfy roll out blankets on the floor for you every night. There's the hot springs runs through the hotel, so every room had its own natural hot tub. There were uh, little hot tubs in the hallways. Um, you could go outside and sit in the snow in the hot springs with the snow around you. Uh, you could go. It was just so beautiful. And we had to take our uh, meals all together. All the hotel guests had to sit in one room, cross-legged on the floor, traditional Japanese style. And that was not just a movie experience. It was a culture experience. Again, I was the only woman and one of the few only women in this hotel. And the eldest Japanese man sat at the head of the room. It was arranged by age and status. And so I'm sitting cross-legged on, you know, waiting for my food to be served and a meal and not knowing what to expect on my first dinner there. And this old man raises his hands and points right at me and he yells at me in Japanese. <laughs> I'm like, uh-oh, what did I do wrong? <laughs> Tadashi leaned over to me and he said, oh, women don't sit like that. <laughs> so women aren't allowed to sit cross-legged. You have wow. to sit on your knees. Yes. So I had to sit on my knees to eat my dinner. <laughs> and uh, it was really surprising. Anyway, the food was all traditional Japanese, which my stomach completely flipped out at. And there was this sweet little old lady who would walk in the snow every morning to go get a piece of bread at her house so I could make a little piece of toast because they don't have bread in in these traditional Japanese. I, I just after eating rice every single day and the traditional Japanese food, my stomach, I got I got I picked up a parasite or something. Ooh, dang. And I was really sick and I had to do these uh, fight scenes and these begin this movie. So it was an amazing experience going to Tokyo and going to the mountains of Japan. And but, but I'm laying there during the light changing set up in six feet of snow. And I didn't, of course, there was no stand in. So I had to do my own stand in and lay there while they changed the lights in six feet of snow with this arrow fake arrow stuck in my arm (laughs) and i had to lay there for like a half an hour and i was in heaven i was like i was bit by the bug that was it i i said this is what i have to do i absolutely love this and it was challenging it wasn't easy because the, the male japanese stuntmen would not fight me they didn't want to fight a woman. <laughs> I had to, here I am all over again, back with the uh, competition and, you know, promoters not wanting to have divisions for women. And even the way I was treated often by other male competitors, here I am again in kind of the same situation in Japan with these Japanese martial artists and stuntmen not wanting to fight a woman. And I mean, not because they respected me because they didn't want me there. And that was the same experience that I experienced in the martial arts competition at the time I competed. Because like, for instance, I'll give you a story. One time I was at the Battle of Atlanta. I think it was probably my third trip to it. And Joe Corley handed me the flag and said, hey, would you go judge men's black belt fighting? Uh, Be head judge. And I said, absolutely. So I grabbed the flags and headed on over there and started the match. And one guy came up to me and grabbed the flags out of my hand. 
and said, what do you think you're doing? And I said, Joe Corley's asked me to be head judge here. And he said, no, no way. Uh, because I was a little petite woman and who did I think I was? Wow. So, oh yeah, no, I can full of stories like this, but I'm not bitter. I'm not saying this to be uh, bitter or um, angry. It's part of my, it's just part of, it shaped me, shaped who I am. It's part of who, you know, what made me who I am today. So I had to face that same thing in Japan. And uh, also in Lebanon, I did a movie in Lebanon. So imagine Muslims wanting to fight a woman. No way, not going to happen. Wow. Oh, yeah, that was a whole different whole whole thing. But anyway, that's where I got the bit by the bug. And I just absolutely had a ball. And Japan was amazing. And the people were amazing and so friendly and that was it. So I came home, I packed up, I moved to LA and said, that's what I'm going to do. I, I quit competition. So I stopped halfway through the 81 season and uh, dropped out of competition and uh, went to, you know, Los Angeles. And this is what I'm going to do. So I started jumping into acting classes and um, found an agent. And that was my new path. Such a cool story. I know I'm just looking through some of the stuff. So I didn't realize you were on an episode of Diagnosis Murder. Did you get to work uh, with uh, Dick Van Dyke quite a bit during that? No, actually, I didn't. I saw him on set, but I didn't get to work work with him. Uh, He's a really nice man. I worked with his son. Uh, His son was in my scene. He, son Jerry, I think. No, that was his brother. His son, Barry, was in my scene. And uh, Joe Penny, another actor. Mm Mm-hmm. And I played a, an undercover policewoman. Okay. And um, that was a blast. That was really nice. It was yeah. fun. They were all really good to me. I met Dick Van Dyke when I lived in California. I actually sold him a computer. And I've told told the story for oh, almost wow. almost 30 years. Hands down, the nicest person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> just without Isn't doubt. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Just oh, such a so nice human. It, it's so wonderful when you meet people like that. That was like um, oh, when I met um, uh, Walter Matthau. Oh, wow. But what, when you meet people like that, it's just such a, it's so refreshing. It's nice when they, when they actually live up to the hype. Cause I know there's other celebrities I've met that are jerks. Yeah. You know? Well, I have to say most are, yeah. I mean, it's sad, but you know, there's the egos are just really out of control. Um, but when you meet someone that's truly genuine and cares about other people, and you're only as good as your top dog on the set. So if you're working with for someone that has that ego, then it's just not that much fun. Yeah. But when you're, your top people are like that, it's a blessing. It's so much fun. What, how was uh, Hercules? I know that you had a couple episodes on, and one of yours was pr- one of the highest rated uh, uh, episodes of the series. I, I remember reading that, but uh, how, how was that? Uh, yes, that was so cool. That was a oh, fun series. Oh, so much fun. That was I talk, and that's another situation where, you know, I said you're only as good as your top dog. Well, the top dog there was like that. Mm-hmm. A really nice man, the producer, Bob Tappert, and of course, the star, Kevin Sorbo. Open-minded, I mean, the most open-minded crew that I've ever worked with. And just, it was probably one of my favorite jobs because of that. Again, that was that just came to me. Uh, Rob Tappert was a martial arts fan, oh. and he he had seen a film that I did in Hong Kong called Writing Wrongs, and he was a real fan of it. So he, I didn't know that. I thought I was going to an audition. My my manager called me. She said, "Oh, you've got this audition at Universal Studios, and uh, they've sent over the script uh, for Hercules." So I was able to read the script, and I figured, well, once I get to the audition, they'll tell me which scene they want me to read, give me the sides, and you know. So I I just went in prepared, knowing the script, expecting to audition. I'm waiting outside. I'm just gelling with my character i'm thinking about it i'm thinking about the story i'm trying not to get nervous which is impossible at an audition (laughs) uh you know i don't know a person who isn't if they say they're not they're lying um but there are exercises to control that so i'm standing out there in front of the bungalow the renaissance films bungalow universal studios waiting to be called in for my audition and instead, someone comes out and says, well, someone comes out and says, okay, they're ready for you. So in I go, expecting to go in to see uh, the casting director. 
And I walk into this room and in the room in sitting in a circle is the entire crew, including the everybody, the all producers, the director, the writers, uh, the head of the department, all the head of the other departments in a circle. And I'm like, uh, I'm speechless. <laughs> and, and Rob Taffer, the producer, stood up and welcomed me and introduced me to everybody and uh asked me to have a seat and just right off the bat started conversing with me. Uh, like, Karen, it's so great to have you here. Thank you for coming. And um, thank you. You know, what do you think of the script? And, and I told him I thought it was a really good script. And, and we're talking about it. And then he says uh, in front of everybody, he says, so, so tell me, what do you think about that scene when you come up out of the water nude? <laughs> and I go, wait a minute. He just said me. He didn't say the character. And he wants my opinion about, and I'm starting to get this clue that I already have the part. <laughs> and so I just kept on conversing and telling him, well, I said, I've never done that kind of thing before. <laughs> I said, I'm, I've prided myself on uh, staying away from anything that my father would be embarrassed of in showbiz he said oh no no but uh, don't worry we'll have a it'll be a close set and uh we'll have ways of you know uh making you uh not be so vulnerable and don't worry about that and all that i said okay <laughs> and uh so anyway we kept going on and i thought I'd find out that i had the role was basically written for me That's and awesome. uh it was a dream. It was an it was an actor's dream. It was just from the beginning. I was just treated like just one of the gang and so special. And I was on cloud nine. And the uh, costumer called me uh, about a week later, uh, Nyla Dixon, who ended up winning Academy Awards for her work in Lord of the Rings. Wow. Uh, she called me up and wanted my design for the costume. And so we went over it on the phone and I told her, you know, I need to have my elbows and knees covered and whatever she could work into padding. But I wanted my abs to show because I have really good abs. At the time. <laughs> I, was like, I, I worked out a lot and I trained really hard for this role and I wanted to be cut and ripped and I wanted to look the part of this creature that was superhuman. So we talked about the different ways to, um, you know, the, the different look that, that I wanted and what she could come up with and her ideas. And she sent me sketches and we went over them and together we came up with the costume. And so I just really studied the character and got to New Zealand. And before I even went to the hotel, they took me straight to the production offices and uh, introduced me to uh, the head of all the departments. And again, everybody was so nice and met the director right away. And he said, come on, let's go put your costume on. Let's see how it looks. And so I put it on and then he took me straight to the hairdresser and they threw this black wig on me and he, we stood back and we looked at me in the mirror and I just started transforming. And he said, you need black contact lenses. What do you think about that? And I said, I'm willing to give it a try. And this was before they had perfected black, con the, the colored contacts. Okay. The black contacts is used to be solid black with no hole in the middle for your retina. So you could see light. And so it was like wearing super dark, dark, dark sunglasses. So I couldn't see a thing. <laughs> if I wasn't under the filming lights, they had to tell me where I was. And it was a real challenge because now the black contacts have a little hole in the middle so that you can, you're not looking like you're looking through dark lenses. Anyway, I put those lenses on, um, I look at costume, and I just started, this character just came to life. And I started making these physical movements and feeling this character. And the director just went with it. And by the time we got on set and as we were filming, he it was like there was this synergy happening that I had never experienced before in any other acting job that was like meant to be. It was I, I had these these bodily movements, these twitches, it was like a bird kind of like a 
if you haven't seen the episode, you won't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But I came up with these bodily movements and this voice and this whole it just felt natural and the way it came about was that was the process and it was really wonderful and then uh, my manager had sent out notices to all the martial arts schools in the country that i would be appearing on hercules and back then is when they had the nielsen ratings these little box tops that sat on people's television sets that certain people got to measure track what people watch and that's how they got the television ratings before all of the technology changed. So uh, they got all these martial arts students across the country watching the show, and that's why the show got the highest ratings for the series. And then, uh, of course, he invited invited me back for the second episode, and it was just, uh, it was amazing. And Kevin Sorbo was so so wonderful to work with, and Michael Hurst, the co-star, and, and the whole cast, everybody had an open mind. Whoever had a good idea could bring it to the table they went with. There were no egos. As a matter of fact, the second script, I didn't think really did justice to my character, nor did it do justice to Kevin for Hercules's character. I didn't think that it was wrapped up well. I didn't think the writers, I think they could have done better. So my husband and I sat down and we just came up with this final scene that tied the whole storyline in and really helped Kevin's character and my character. And at the script reading in New Zealand, uh, we all sat around the table the week before we start shooting and did a you know, cold reading of the script. At the end of the reading, I raised my hand and I said, um, can I propose an idea about adding a scene uh, to this final scene? And I just, I came up with an idea that I think you might like. And they looked at each other, uh, Kevin and the producer and the writer. And the writers were like, uh, okay, um, <laughs> even though I was stepping on their toes. But again, open-minded people make a big difference. And they said, sure, go ahead, read it. So I read the scene. There was silence again. Kevin looks at the director, director looks at the producer, producer looks at the writers. And then uh, Rob Tapper, the producer, said, let's do it. It's great. <laughs> and Kevin said, it's awesome. So cool. I'm really proud of the fact that my husband helped contribute to the final scene in that second episode, which gave a lot of meaning to my relationship with Hercules and the storyline. So that was very cool. But that's just an example of working with people who have open minds, people who bring something. And this is a lesson for everybody Mm -hmm. in every situation. If you have an open mind and no ego, you have you might have a really fantastic idea that comes from the person that sweeps your floor or, you know, brings your coffee or you just never know where uh, a good if you have an open mind, better things can happen for you. So. I so much appreciate that experience and having had worked with people with those kinds of open minds and uh, that's intelligence and that is having courage and uh, not fearing and not having ego. It, It can do a lot. It can go a long way. That's awesome. So looking through your, your IMDb, I don't think so, but did you ever get to work with Mark DeCoscos at all? Yes, I did. Um, yeah, I co-starred in a film called um, Boogie Boy. Oh, right there. Okay, I missed that one. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, that was a film um, with Joan Jett. Oh, wow. Oh, she was awesome. In fact, I had worked with her in uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. Okay. But I established a friendship with her in um, Boogie Boy with Mark Dacascos. And got to work with her and who Emily Lloyd, who was a really great English actress. Yep. Oh, Michael um, Payne was really, in that. Wow. Yeah, there was some really good people in that movie. Tracy Lords. Wow, there's a lot of big names there. That's cool. Yeah, Tracy Lord. She was real interesting. Okay. And I don't know who else was in that movie. Uh, but that was shot here in Los Angeles. Okay. And it was fun to be able to work with Mark, who I used to babysit. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, okay. I lived with, yes. Well, when I was in Denver I suppose, um, yeah. and I started studying with Alan Malia, I lived with him. Okay. 
for a while. I had no place to stay. And uh, Mark was just, what, nine years old or something. And I had a, I got around on a little Honda CL-175. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, I used to, you know, take care of he and his brother and give him rides on the back of my motorcycle. So Mark and I go way back. <laughs> we cool. have quite a history. And then I got Mark a job working at uh, Universal Studios okay. in the Conan show, oh, The Adventures wow. of Conan, where yep. I played Red Sonia for seven years, six nice. years, and Mark played young Conan. Okay. And so, yeah, we kind of family. I'm, I'm a huge Only the Strong fan. That's one of those movies that I watch at least once a year. Oh, yes. Yeah, big, that, uh, big fan absolutely. of that show. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. And was cool. he was actually working, uh, he was working at Conan, I think, when he was starting to film Only the Strong. Okay. Um, and he was writing a script and he was really wanting to leave the Conan show and take off and do uh, film work. But he needed to pay some bills, so he hung, hung in there doing the stage show for as long as he could. Okay. But so I remember taking some capoeira classes with him. Really? When he was learning capoeira from uh, Eamon, and, Eamon uh, Santo. Yes. I'm actually yes. trying to get him on my show. I've, I've sent a few requests, but I haven't heard back yet. So fingers crossed, he'd be fun oh, to talk to. Yes, well, I haven't spoken with him forever, but uh, I'll see if I can dig in and try to put in a word for you. Well, that'd be cool. Yeah, that's um, that's one art yes. I've never I've never studied uh, capoeira. I've never had a local school, but the art I just it's just a beautiful art, and I always just love learning about it. It is. It's very exotic. So, in all your years of martial arts throughout your life, is there one philosophy you've learned that just rises to the top of your list? It's super important. You keep coming back to it. I would have to say that having humility and always thinking of yourself as a white belt. Nice. Uh, you don't stop learning. You don't, the martial arts, you can take with you as long as you live on this earth. Mm -hmm. And you can, like you just said, you want to learn Kapawara. How many thousands of martial arts styles are there? Yeah. And how many different techniques can you learn? And and, and not only that, but lifestyles and self-defense awarenesses and just philosophies and uh, going back to keeping an open mind to anything. So if you think of yourself as, oh, I'm not a 10th degree, 8th degree, 9th degree, whatever, professor, uh, grandmaster, uh, at what? It means nothing, really. You've accomplished a certain level in your style, but uh, as far as all of the knowledge out there, you're still and always will be a white belt. And if you think of yourself that way, then I think you're going to always be humble and open-minded to learning new things. And I think being humble, humility, having humility and an open mind, and that brings with it kindness and um, generosity and all of the good things uh, that we strive to be. Okay, good answer. All right, I have some fun questions to wrap it up. So who are three, four, five names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Personal Mount Rushmore? Well, Bruce Lee. Nice. This question requires a lot of thought, actually. I don't know that I can answer it quickly. Um, be super quick, but I mean, and, and most people know that the answer could change day to day. I know it can, it very much can. Yeah, no question for me, Bruce Lee. He was a major influence and inspiration to me. Uh, read everything that I could on him, watched every movie. I used to tape record him at the drive-in movie theater. Nice. <laughs> I mean, Bruce That's Lee awesome. was amazing. Bruce Lee was, out of this question, amazing. Yeah. Um, who else would I put there? There's so many people who have done so much to advance martial arts that people don't know about, but uh, the famous people that come to mind, I think Chuck Norris probably has to go up there. Okay. It's hard to separate, you know, those who've like contributed versus movie stars. Mm -hmm. I get Jackie Chan. Actually, I would put up there because he is not only an incredible martial artist. Uh, he took it beyond Bruce Lee to me. Yeah. He's a really nice man as a human being. He's got great moral values and uh, he's just a really good man. So that's three. I would have to say. I'd like to see a woman up there. For me, Angela Mao was an inspiration. 
I don't think she was a great martial artist. I, she wasn't, you know, technique wise. However, she was the first woman to get an above the title billing in uh, martial arts film. Oh, okay. And uh, she was used in, in so many action films. Uh, she got beat up so much and really took a lot of physical pounding. And she hung in there and did so many movies. I think that had she had the training, she could have been an incredible technician. But she did a lot to advance seeing more women on film. Um, and a lot of people kind of overlook her. Gosh, you know, personally, I mean, there's so many people who have developed martial arts in the country. Um, I, 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 you know, I'd have to go by like, okay, you know, Joe Corley for tournaments and <laughs> what he's okay. done with PKA. But, yep. you know, I could, I would really, this is a question that I think needs to be um, thought over because there's so many facets and you know, you'd have to think about, well, why would you, what qualities would put them on a Mount Rushmore? Uh, it would have to be more than what they did in movies. It would be based on what they are as a person, a human being, what they did to help develop martial arts in the country. You know, and, and Chuck, you know, he brought it, basically, he brought exposure to it in America. Yep. And he and he's a good guy. I mean, I worked with a guy for two years and uh, he got to know him and he, he treated me well. And he actually was a head judge at my tournaments a couple of times before <laughs> nice. as his movies were just taking off. Mm -hmm. Good guys were black. And uh, uh, so I got to hang out with him early in the career. And then later, you know, he hired me on to work in Walker for two years. So that was pretty cool. Let's see who else. I think Jet Li, movie-wise, I I think he's one of the best. Really, I'd have to give it more thought. I give, what did I give you? Four or five names? Oh yeah, I think you gave five or six actually. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. But I would probably change that after I after I hang up. Yep. Uh, most most people <laughs> <You know>? would. <laughs> most people would. It's I okay. know. I'm curious. What have some other people said? Oh man. Well, obviously Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris are probably two of the most picked. A lot of people pick their own instructors. Mm -hmm. uh, Jet Li has been picked. Jackie Chan has been picked. People have picked Masoyama. Yeah. People Masoyama. have picked, I think some one or two people picked Gichin Funakoshi. I mean, it's, it's quite a wide range. I, I've had, you know, a few people pick nothing but women to put up there. Things like that. Wow. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So people have, you know, picked strictly UFC fighters if they were like MMA guys and stuff. So it's, right. it's, it really varies by the person, but easily Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris are the two most often picked. Um, not everyone yeah, picks them, but they probably pick the most. Right. Right. Interesting. I used to ask for just one name <laughs> when I first started doing this and no one could give just one. That's when I came up with the whole Mount Rushmore thing and at least gave people a little, yeah. a little more options. So it's a really good question. It's fun. It's fun just to hear it and get the talk going. So that's good though. Yeah. How about a favorite martial arts book? Oh, one that, you know, maybe, maybe it's the first one you recommend to someone's looking for a book or one that you've read multiple times that you continue to enjoy reading or. Uh, well, you know, I mean, the first book I ever read was uh, Musashi, A Book of Five Rings. Nice. Yeah, if you call that, you know, and Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Those two have been picked a lot, so that they count. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, those two and Tao of Jeet Kune Do are probably the three most picked books. The Tao of Jeet Kune Do. There you go. I mean, that's basically... It, you know, or do you want, you know, you're talking to someone who prefers hard style or Chinese style. Mm -hmm. It would differ. But I think that the Tao of Jeet Kune Do probably would be, I would pick that as the first book, really. That's, for my, someone that's my pick, too. To, so <laughs> yeah, for someone who wants to, to start training. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter what style you do. Cool. And um, that's why I like Wahab Jindo so much, because the uh, the style is that you adapt it to yourself. It's having that open mind thing. If what doesn't work for you, you, you find something that works mm -hmm. for you. That's and that's the philosophy kind of basically behind what Hopkindo. You don't have to be, you can have a handicap. You can have, doesn't matter how old you are. I mean, if you can't kick high, if you, if you can't stand up for too long, I mean, you can adapt the style to fit you and you can create moves within the style to make work for you. Nice. 
well, the Tao Jeet Kune Do, you can apply to any style. You right. can apply that. All that stuff in there is useful. So there you go. Okay. Now this one you might not have an answer for. Some do, some don't. Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Were you ever into I games? I don't. <laughs> okay. No, I never did get into video games. That's okay. Nope. That's about, it's about 50-50. Depends on the guest. So these last yeah. few these last few questions, you can't pick one that you've been involved in. So okay. this one, a favorite martial arts TV show. Okay. And it can go old school. I've had people pick Green Hornet and Kung Fu, and I've had people pick Warrior and Cobra Kai and everything in between. So, Well, Green Hornet is a good answer. It wasn't what you would call a martial arts TV show, but it had a lot of martial arts in it. Yeah. A lot of martial arts. And maybe subconscious, subconsciously, that influenced my choice to take martial arts, you know? Okay, cool. Because it was so mystique. It was a mis- It was, what year was that on? What was that? It had been 60, was it 65, 66, I think. Yeah. So maybe subconsciously, that kind of influenced my decision to take martial arts to look up at that board and go oh karate because it was so exotic okay and uh all i knew was you know had seen in fighting was boxing Mm -hmm. so perhaps that influenced me it was exotic okay yeah that's the word for it and of course the show kung fu yep the original yeah no question i don't think i ever missed an episode of that nice so i would say that kung fu with David Carradine. How about a favorite martial arts movie? Oh man, Enter the Dragon. Nice. That's a good pick. That one's probably about 40 to 50% easily people pick that one. So <laughs> Yeah, I could watch it I, every year. I yep. mean, never gets old. Never gets Oh, no. Uh, the blue Bruce Lee's charisma in that film yep. and his technique and the philosophy all of it. Yeah. Forget about it. I got to see it on the big screen for the first time ever 2 months ago when it they re-released yes. it for the 50th anniversary and that was so cool. Yes. I've probably seen awesome. it 100 times, but to finally see it on the big screen was pretty awesome. Pretty good. Yeah. Cool. Really good. All right, final question. Now, this one doesn't have to necessarily be a martial arts movie, just a favorite movie fight scene. I've had people pick anything from Marvel and Rocky and, you know, things like that to Bruce Lee and Jet Li and Princess Bride. Anything, anything goes. Yeah, I got to go with Rocky. I got to go with uh, Rocky 1, Rocky 2. Ooh. Rocky versus Apollo classic oh my <laughs> heart pounds every time in fact i just watched it not too long ago again nice just uh yeah that uh, if something makes my heart pound like that mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a winner all-time classic yeah a couple of years ago my daughter wanted to watch the movie creed so i said only if you watch all the rockies with me first so over two months we watched all the rockies then all the creed movies so <laughs> so she's a fan too <laughs> Oh, good for you. Yeah. Raising her right. Oh, and my kid watch yeah. my kids watch all the eighties. My kids love eighties movies, eighties, nineties movies. We we watch them all the time. My daughter's like, yeah. what what eighties movie can we watch this weekend, Dad? <laughs> so Yeah, I gotta say Rocky. Yeah, Rocky and Creed, that's just all time the most emotionally charged and well filmed, well choreographed. I mean, have you studied you seen documentaries and studied like how he put that together? Yeah. And all the work the homework he did in uh creating that that scene yeah that was pretty impressive fascinating yes very impressive that just so uh so much respect and admiration for all the hard work he put into that so creative and you know i have to i mean there were some beautiful scenes in like crouching tiger hidden dragon Mm -hmm. um that things like that that you've never seen ever done before but didn't make my heart pound like it did in Rocky. So I have to go with Rocky and Apollo. Nice. And for, for me, that's I usually my favorite fight scene changes. My favorite movie will never change. My favorite martial arts movie is always going to be karate kid just because that's the movie mm-hmm. that got me into martial arts. But my mm. favorite fight scene changes. You know, I've gone from like Born Identity. There's a couple of, you know, that apartment fight scene when the guy goes out the window. That's a yeah. great fight scene. I also love Rocky. Even that final, Raging the Bull. final, yeah, the final oh, fight in Karate Kid too. The yeah. Final is, fight in Karate and yes. uh, Raging Bull. Yes, Raging Bull, uh, another good one. With, oh my gosh. So yeah, it's uh, my fight scene one changes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I'm a big movie buff. I'm a huge movie buff. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah, I I love. I'm not a big action film buff. Yeah, I love character driven films, but there's some really classic, you know, fights in films that aren't necessarily martial arts films. Oh yeah, like uh, the oh, there's a really good fight scene in the movie Take It. Oh yes, uh, with Liam Neeson. <laughs> yes. Yep. You know that are so realistic, just mm-hmm. these down and dirty street survival type fights yeah. that aren't necessarily great technique martial art that are just like heart pounding. They're so realistic, like could definitely happen to you. On yeah. The, yeah. Things like that. That's why I love the uh, born identity, the Matt Damon one where he, when, he, when, when he's sleeping on the park bench and those two cops wake him up and it's like a 30 second fight scene when he takes out both of those cops and it's just like, oh, wow, yeah. that was so cool. Oh yeah. 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 So things like that. I get, you know, and even just, I just rewatched uh, best of the best a couple weeks ago, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is another favorite. Oh, wow. You know, another, I have about 10 to 20 movies that I'll rewatch every year. Just like that one, Roadhouse, Best of the Best, Bloodsport. You know, those classics that I'll just, I'll rewatch at least once a year just because I love them so much. Yeah, that's great. No, that's awesome. Before I let you go, I just, I have to say thank you. This has been such a blast. Like I said, I know we, we've been trying to do this for a while and I'm, I'm so glad you're an amazing storyteller. You truly are. Oh, well, thank you yeah. for having me. And I'm so sorry it took so long. Oh, I so just, it's worth, so worth the wait. Oh, Oh, like, oh, you're just really so kind. And I thank you for such interesting questions. Very thought provoking. Thank you. And I uh, uh, really love your format. Thank you so much for having me. I thought of one more quick one. Have you ever thought of writing a book? Just thinking about that, you're such a great storyteller. Have you ever thought of writing your, your autobiography yet? You know, Brian, I got to tell you, yes. And I got to tell you only recently because okay. you have to be about the seventh person <laughs> within a month's time. that has said that to me so i think i'm getting this message (laughs) i'll be waiting for it (laughs) there's a calling and um i had a writer uh, approach me uh when i went uh i went to the long beach internationals last month in july to accept their hall of fame award and see that tournament for the first time since uh, 1979 wow and steve cooper who who has taken it over and runs it is such a nice man and in fact he has like an 80 percent chance of getting the arena back that big venue that originally i competed in down there by the water for next year so he's really working really hard on that but anyway um on the uh, Saturday daytime of signing autographs and a writer approached me and uh, came up and asked me about that. And he said, just, just think about it and just start talking into a tape recorder and uh, a writer will take it over for you. So uh, yeah, I'm thinking about it. Okay. I've got, I could keep talking. <laughs> so there must be a reason for that. I don't know. <laughs> well, if, if you do, let me know. Cause like I said, I'll be one of the first ones to buy it and I'll, I'll promote oh, the heck out of it. Cause it'd be, it'd be exciting so to read it. I love martial arts books, so I don't get to That's read so as often wonderful. since I started the show. I just don't read as often yes, as I used to. But no, me either. Reading yeah. is just it, it. I don't have the time. It's like yeah. But the good thing is about books uh, that they can end up on audio tapes, and uh, you know you could voice you. I could be uh, you could be my voiceover guy. <laughs> <laughs> you could be my book narrator. I've never done audiobook, but for you, I'd strongly consider it. I probably would. <laughs> I just I've never had the interest in doing audiobooks. I don't like listening to them myself. I maybe it's because I'm, oh, really? I'm behind I, the mic so I, much. I mean, I'll listen to a podcast, but audiobooks I, and books, I just want to read them. That's the only way I can get through a long drive. Yeah. See if me, it's I have podcasts, to drive somewhere. So. <laughs> oh well, podcasts, yeah, podcasts and books and yeah. books on tape, books on. But uh, anyway, yeah. So, well, thank you for uh, putting thank in you. Your, this has been such a blast. So, thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I will let you know. I, I believe your episode will be out towards the end of November. As soon as I get the exact date, I'll let you know. But I think it's end of November. It's every Thursday they come out. So uh, I will let you okay. know ahead of time. But I truly appreciate your time. And, and it's been such a blast. Well, likewise. I, I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.